Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 144 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. I get the good mic because we're social distancing. Yes. So we are following the rules from the CDC and the state of California and New York, and we are in our own spaces, our own separate pods recording this. So Dylan does get Toby's mic and maybe he'll sound a little better. We'll see about that. I haven't been able to use my pod in so long. It's been languishing on the roof where I keep it. It's like a translucent (laughs) green. It looks like a big P. It's great. I think I was thinking of Love is Blind, which I don't know if you guys have seen, but they all start out in pods. So What, really? Yeah. They fall in love by just talking through the pods and then they get Mm. engaged before seeing each other. Mm. And then they see each other and see if it can work in the real world. It is it is gold. Netflix. That is wild. Engaged is a strong. Wow, that's a strong action. <laughs> Andrew, have you seen it? I was on it. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I haven't seen it. J- Jillian watched it, but I uh, and so I skated in and out and saw it. There, my only real impression of it was there was a lady who was always very drunk on it. Oh, Messica. Messica. Yeah. Oh well, when your parents name you that, you know. <laughs> Her name is Jessica, but I mean, she's a little bit of a mess. So how's everybody's quarantine going? Pretty good, actually. Yeah. I mean, as good as it can be, I guess. It's a weird thing, but, you know, we're pretty fortunate to be set up in a way that it's not like we still have our jobs and and all that. So we count ourselves pretty lucky. But yeah, I mean, it's a little weird. Yeah, no, same, same. Uh, I worked remotely before. Uh, now my wife, Louise, is working from home, which is great because now I get to spend more time together, getting more reading done. Yeah, uh, you know, stuff hasn't really hit the fan quite yet um, as of the recording of this, knock on wood. Um, so, so far, it's just a cancellation of all social engagements, which I kind of enjoy. Well, I agree with all those things, and yet I'm filled with constant sense of dread and foreboding. <laughs> yes. Um. I, I feel like maybe it's time to announce to the podcast so people understand where I'm coming from to our podcast listeners. Oh, wow. Big moment. Okay. Well, now you've teased it. You now have to. I have to. Well, I'm six months pregnant and I'm having a baby in July. And, and it's yours. And it's Dylan's. Dear listener. Yay! It's only oh. my baby. <laughs> and that's really exciting. As I've talked about before on the podcast, we had a hard time with fertility issues. And so we were really excited. And now, you know, this is happening. We're still very excited, but I also am filled with fear that I'm going to get the virus or Dylan is, or I'm not going to be able to give birth in a hospital or it's going to be the apocalypse. And that's just my daily, you know, my daily thought process. Your daily checklist. Yeah. Yeah. But how can you relate that to reading? (laughs) I feel bad that we've kind of burned through all the like post-apocalyptic disease books of like blindness and station 11 already. I, here's the thing. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not drawn to that material right now. Like I want to read something candy and fun. I do not want to read about post-apocalypse right now. Yeah, I felt similar. I was like, I'm so glad I didn't read uh, Station Eleven for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard of people reading The Stand like intentionally right now. Uh, and if you're unaware of what the stand happens in The Stand, it's not a spoiler to say that in the first opening, like 100, 150 pages of the book, a crazy bizarro disease wipes out 99.9% of life on Earth. Uh, it's very, it's probably, it's my favorite part of the book, honestly. <laughs> Strange to say. <laughs> 
but it's very uh, intense. He just kind of jumps from person to person as they live their last day on Earth and succumb to the disease. But uh, as much as I love it, I would never want to read it now because it's a little freaky. Yeah, I feel the same about all my friends who are watching Contagion right now. Like Dylan and Bailey did? We Okay, we watched it two weeks ago, which is like two years ago at this point. Like, <laughs> it, it just felt completely different when we were watching it. Like, huh, this could happen. Sure. And now it's like, it's happening. Um, okay, so <laughs> Speaking of ways to connect it to books, <laughs> Dylan actually came up with this idea, which I think is really sweet, and it's called the To Read List Book Club. So you might have heard in my last like mini-sode or via social media, we're doing a thing where we're trying to get our listeners to feel more connected in this time when we all feel separate and scared. So we're telling you the title ahead of time of the book that I'm going to read next so that you can read along with us and email us your reading experience your review, your discussion questions, and we'll share that all in the next episode as if we're all in one room in one book club. What a great idea. That's an excellent idea. Stay tuned for the results. Oh, wait, they've already been released. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> should we should we say the, the result now or should we wait till the end? Well, we already posted on Instagram, so we might, yeah, as, might, well. Well yeah. might as well say it now. So thanks to everybody that voted on our Instagram poll and social media. It was really close, you guys. There was only one vote that separated the top from the second choice. Holy Toledo. So in last place for the results, last but not least, educated with 10% of the vote. I was shocked that this was so low. Yeah, y'all are sleeping on educated. Educated is great, guys. If you haven't read it or you don't know what it is, it's fantastic. I won't do a summary because I don't want to waste time, but educated is great. Tara Westover, highly recommend it. Yeah, maybe we'll do that one later. All right, so that was 10%. At 11%, just one more vote, was The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin. We had some people that were really championing it, but it just didn't get up there. Also great. Then, third place, Pride and Prejudice. Again, some really fervent fans, but Pride and Prejudice had 15% of the vote. Mm-hmm. That's the one that shocked me that it was that Pride and Prejudice was so much lower than the top two. I thought that was going to be a runaway winner. Me too. Mm. Maybe people wanted to read something new. Maybe they'd already read it. Who knows? Yeah, Mm. that would be my guess. So our top two, it was between Red Wall by Brian Jacks, (gasps) Toby's favorite book. What's (laughs) that? And Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid that just came out last year. I was surprised that Daisy Jones was up there so high just because it was so recent and not as classic as some of the other books. My theory is that people got it for Christmas and they haven't read it yet, so they want an excuse to read it. I literally gave this book to my mom for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So there was one vote that separated the number one from the number two. It ended up being Redwall with 33% of the vote. Clooney the Scourge! Yes! (laughs) Amped. Yes. So we're going to cover Redwall on the April 8th episode, and we're going to record April 4th. So if you get us your thoughts, your reviews, your questions by noon Pacific time on April 4th, we will include it on the episode, and we're really excited to hear from you. You don't have to reread the book, too. If you read it as a kid, you can give us your thoughts, and we'll share them. I'd like to give a big anti-shout-out to my wife, Louise, who knew I really wanted Redwall to be read on this uh, on this podcast and instead voted for Daisy Jones and the Six. Thanks, Louise. <laughs> Anti-thanks. Well, you still got your way, Toby. Yeah, I know. She was thwarted. <laughs> and because it was so close, just one vote, it seems like you guys really do want a review of Daisy Jones. So my thought is we'll do that one on uh, the next episode, April 22nd. So if you voted for that and you really still want to read it and send us your thoughts, you can still read it but you're not allowed to read anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Bailey, I'm like 
I'm like, I, I think you will like Redwall because um, I love it. I'm going to reread it for the episode. Um, there is like a tiny bit of nervousness in my heart that maybe you won't like it, but I have no nervousness about Daisy Jones and the Six. I think you're going to live it. Ooh. Well, it must be hard with Redwall because it's like your favorite, you know, it's like, what if, yeah. what if Bailey hates it? And I've I've put myself out there saying that I reread it in recent years. You know, when you kind of like read, have you guys ever done this? Like reread something from your childhood, like fearing that it won't be as good. And then it totally oh, is yeah. as good. And you're like, I was right all along. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, phew. Yeah. I don't have time for old books. <laughs> So, so that's our first book club pick. I'm excited for it. That is very exciting. I am going into it with open arms, with open tiny little mice arms. I'm excited to like this book and hopefully that's it will distract from the pandemic outside. <laughs> Two quick other things. Number one, our fan Lindsay sent us some mugs. They're awesome. Oh, thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Lindsay. We love them. Dylan got one that says Harry Potter, but it's Harry as in like, you know, furry. It's pretty cute. <laughs> Has a cat on it. Pot- how's Potter spelled? P-A-W-T-E-R like his. Oh, that's not how you spell Potter. <laughs> 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 the joke was lost on Dylan. I totally know this book. Yeah, I know you do. I imagine Dylan reading Harry Potter and he's like, I don't get it. He doesn't even have a beard. <laughs> He's not Harry at all. Hagrid should be Harry Potter. <laughs> the main character is like this. He's like a groundskeeper. He's the hairy one, but they don't like barely ever talk to him. He pots outside. Like he puts stuff in pots. Okay, I'm, I'm done with this joke. So, so uh, one other thing I want to say um, is that I had a little bit of shame, not shame. Hashtag mm. shame, not shame. Explain. That is not a hashtag that's going to get off the ground, Bailey. I I'm just so sorry. made it up. And it is. It's going to be a thing. So I'm thinking a lot about, you know, the local bookstores around us that most of them have to close or only open for online ordering or that sort of thing. So I wanted to support our local bookstore, Chevalier's Books. So I put in an order for books to be delivered to our house in the mail, but it's through Chevalier's. And I got one book called Well Met, which is a, just mm. a fun romance. And then I got a bunch of board books for our future baby. Aww. But so I'm not I'm not shamed because I did it purposefully to try to support, you know, the bookstore. So I would encourage you to do that. There's also a service called Libro FM, which is if you like audiobooks, you can sign up and designate your local bookstore as the place where all the money goes to when you order an audiobook. And I've heard great things about it. I haven't used it. But in case you want to support your bookstore. Wow, that sounds really cool. Yeah. Anybody else have any shame, not shame? I have. I am devoid of shame. I am a little bit concerned because uh, my local library where I usually get my books uh, is closed. So I can't even return my copy of Middlemarch. I also am shame free this week. Dylan has a little bit of shame because he has had this book out from the library since December. And I've been reminding him to return it. And... Then we got a notice in the mail that the fines had been sent to a collection agency and we owe $75 <laughs> to the Los Angeles Public Library. Whoa. For a book? <laughs> but. Wait, wait, wait. $75 only out since December of 2019? Well, because the book itself was worth like $40 and then it was like $30 in late fees, I guess. So. Oh. So then I was like, Dylan, go to the library. And this was before the quarantine. So he went and they were like, he's like, oh. They say it's fine because I have the book and they let me check it out again. So he still has it. And, you know, everything works out for Dylan. Did they think, did they waive the fees? Yeah, because they are canceling. Um, even before the quarantine, they were going to be doing uh, late fee forgiveness. 
And then I legitimately tried to return it in March, which I told them I would do, and they have literally sealed the book return shut. Yeah. The the moral of the story is everything works out if you're Dylan, even when your wife is worrying about something, it's all just going to work out. So just live your life. Yeah. (laughs) But only if you're Dylan. (laughs) Only if you're Dylan. I just imagine, I have this mental image. I can't remember who sings that song. So live your life. Hey. That's a T.I. featuring Rihanna. Thank you. So it's just, it's Dylan, uh, T.I. and Rihanna all like waving their late library books around. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, let's get down to business. This week on the podcast, Toby had a book chosen at random from his shelf that was quite a doozy. Toby, what book did you have? Oh, I had a little old book called Middlemarch by George Eliot. Ooh. Georgie L. Old Georgie L. Before you start, I just want to acknowledge and appreciate you for reading this in a month. It's a long book. You did it. And I'm proud of you, Toby. Oh, thank you, Bailey. I would feel so much more proud of myself if you hadn't had to do the same thing with far less time. Um, so yeah, uh, Middlemarch. I was, uh, I mean, even if you heard our last uh, full episode, I was pretty trepidatious about attempting this book. Mine was 800 pages and change. It's one of those ones where you check it out of the library and the person checking who you're checking it out from is like, oh, huh, okay. <laughs> like, you know, they don't want to make, make a comment or whatever. But yeah, I got like raised eyebrows. The, oh, that was it. Yeah, the lady who checked it out for me was like, you know what? I'm just going to give you an extension now, which I've <laughs> never had done before. And I was like, okay, <laughs> thank you. It was like nice, but also like, yeah, intimidating. Um, So Middlemarch, yeah. If you're unfamiliar with Middlemarch, it is basically a kind of like life in the times in a country, an English country town. So it'll be kind of like um, Jane Austen uh, time frame. And yeah, she's basically like painting a picture of uh, these like village, for lack of a better term, village people uh, and their lives and how they interact with life. Is there like a fireman and like a Native yeah, American? Yeah, a Native American, yeah. strangely. It's really, that's a bizarre part of the story now. Um, <laughs> so my first, first impression is that there is a prologue that is so dry and so difficult to get through. It's not very long. It's basically a meditation on who St. Teresa is, which is basically like an iconoclast and like a woman who made her own life for herself. But the, the intro is so dry and so difficult to get through and so off-putting that I think many people, myself included, I had, I had attempted this before and not gotten very far to get through the prologue, but it's very intense. And you, if you read that thinking the whole book is going to be like that, I can imagine many people being like, nope, nope, no way, no. But just so, you know, a warning to anyone who wants to take this book on, read past the prologue for sure. Once I got past that, my biggest impression with this book overall, and even from the right, from the first few chapters, it is shockingly funny. Like, laugh out loud, annoy the people in your house, get stares from people in public, funny. You're not going to be, like, busting a gut, but I was consistently, like, snorting, laughing throughout the whole thing. Um, I have written here, and I think it's accurate to say that the book is full of, like, these top-quality roasts of people because it's all... The whole book is focused on the psychology of the main characters. She kind of head-hops from character to character and tries to help you understand the really, really minute details of behind every single action that each character does. And in doing so, she just, like, eviscerates them. You can tell she'd be, like, one of those people where, like, 
you'd want her to be your friend because she's so smart and she's so funny, but you'd also be like, oh man, like, I hope she doesn't like turn around and like totally skewer me with like an accurate depiction of my personality, like all the flaws exposed. Because that's basically what she does the whole book. In brief, um, like I said, it's, you know, small town people, but really we're working with mostly landed aristocracy. The main character is this young woman, Dorothea, who is extremely intelligent uh, and extremely devout. She thinks she's wise, but she's not because she's very young and she basically rushes in. It's not really a spoiler because it happens within the first 100 pages of this 800 800 page book and it's on the back of most editions. She rushes into a ill-conceived marriage with a much older man named Mr. Casabon um, who is basically a religious scholar um, and has no zest for life whereas Dorothea is like very I, vivacious would be the wrong word but like she just she definitely has a passion for life. She's very energetic um, and she, she basically considers the pursuit of religious knowledge and knowledge in general to be the highest aim one can achieve. And so she meets this man and she is quite young and she falls head over heels for him and rushes into marriage and very quickly finds out that this is a horrific mistake. And that is kind of, I wanted to relate George Eliot to an author that people might be more familiar with, which is Jane Austen, because I feel like they really are writing about the same kinds of things, which is like relationships between people, basically, and and especially the relationship of women and general society at that time, especially British society. But I really found it interesting where I find Austen seems to focus on life before marriage and the kind of courtship and the excitement that can go into that and, you know, the passionate play-by-play of how that situation can go down, George Eliot is much, much more interested in life after marriage and especially what happens when maybe your passion dies down a little bit and you're kind of stuck considering who you're really married to. There's two main couples. There's um, Dorothea and Mr. Cossabon and there is um, a doctor named Lydgate and his bride, Rosamund. And I don't want to give too much about Lydgate and Rosamund away because they they have a more complicated story and it, and it is later in the book. But safe to say, neither of them are happy marriages for very different reasons. That sounds so interesting. I really like it when they kind of when books go beyond the happy ever after, like what happens after after I do, you know? That, that's the whole thing of Middlemarch, basically, is mm-hmm. what happens after I do <laughs> and <laughs> how much of a bummer it can be. So uh, a lot of Middlemarch is about the assumptions that we make about other people and how much trouble we can get into, like assuming people are the people we want them to be. And this is not just in the married relationships. Almost everyone in the whole book at one time or another makes an assumption about someone else and the way that they want them to behave, even if presented with kind of evidence to the contrary already. And it's that kind of delightful experience as a reader, you know, the dramatic irony where you're like, oh, man, they're cruising for a bruise and like they are really not going to get what they want of this situation. And then you see it play out and Elliot really steps back and her authorial voice is really strong. She's speaking directly to the reader a lot. And she will just, like I said, like skewer people and be like, look at this fool. You know, they really they really didn't know what they were getting in for here, but we could have all seen it coming. Right. But you never. You never feel safe uh, in this book because, you know, you could be laughing at someone on one page and then you turn the page and there's someone who be- behaves like you, the reader, does. And she'll just she'll get you just as good. And you'll be like, oh, man, that is me. Like, those are the mistakes I make. 
And and I have to say, um, not only is is it really genuinely hysterically funny, her, for lack of a better term, like wisdom and understanding about relationships between people and who people are is just top notch. Like I was, and there's moments over and over and over again where I was just so blown away by what she had to say about people. So that was, that really impressed me. Awesome. Uh, related to that, I have a quote here. It's a bit long, but um, <laughs> there are, there are very few parts of this book that are not long in some way. So this is the end of chapter 21. We are all of us born in moral stupidity, taking the world as an udder to feed our supreme selves. Dorothea had begun to emerge from that stupidity, but yet it had been easier to her to imagine how she would devote herself to Mr. Cossabon and become wise and strong in his strength and wisdom than to conceive with that distinctness, which is no longer reflection but feeling, an idea wrought back to the directness of sense like the solidity of objects, that he had an equivalent center of self, whence the lights and shadows must always fall with a certain difference. Oh. Basically, it's a really, really eloquent way of saying everyone has their own perspective, but when she says it like that, you're like, wowza. Honestly, as you're reading it, like I can tell that it's beautiful writing, but a lot of my brain is just trying to like translate all the words. <laughs> like it's yeah, it's complicated prose. It would probably be oh, easier yeah. to listen to than to read. I bet. I I did both. You know, I'm not gonna lie. I deployed everything in my power to get this book done on time. Uh, <laughs> so I read the physical copy and listened to the book to kind of speed it along. It's one of those books where, for me, the first hundred pages was like a real struggle. But you kind of your brain just adapts to it, and then eventually you're. Just like oh yeah i can follow her like you know seven nested clauses and i'm still okay <laughs> cool so those are i've mentioned a lot of things that I would be uh, listed as my elves i do have a few orcs uh-oh first of all it is intensely long and with that quote being read you can imagine just how long it can feel at sometimes there is no part of this book that you breeze through you really have to be paying attention all the time i even you know i listen to some audiobooks while i'm kind of multitasking and doing this or that even this audiobook like basically all i could do listening to it was like take a walk like nothing not even like wash the dishes or anything like you really have to be paying attention that's not necessarily a big orc, though. Um, one of my other orcs was that there is a lot, a lot in this book. Like, to contrast it with Austin, Austin really has pared her books down to mostly the relationships with, like, a little bit of mention of, like, politics and religion. But it's very digestible, which I think makes her more relatable and more easy to read. George Eliot goes real deep into political and religious discussions. And she does it in a way where it, she certainly does not seem to be writing for posterity in those sections, as in she references stuff that is totally lost on us. like intricate questions of doctrine about religion that I think to the readers of the day, they would just be like, oh yeah, duh. You know, I know exactly what she's talking about, but I was like continually lost because Elliot steps back a lot um, and kind of addresses the reader directly and kind of, you know, gets everybody with the same level of kind of like, oh, this is what everyone's flaws are. I found myself not as caught up in the love story as I had been when I read Jane Austen, for example. Um, so by the end of the book, you know, tensions are really high. Uh, you know, there's kind of a will they won't they with some people going on. And I did not find myself super invested because she had been so aloof at times. For some people, it might work the kind of switching back and forth between, you know, this is a passionate love story and then kind of stepping back and being like, well, this is what they're all doing wrong. But for me, it really did take me out of it. And so parts of it that I felt maybe were supposed to be like really moving and I was supposed to be excited about people getting
putting it together. I, I really wasn't. And like I said, like when you're enjoying this book, it's such an amazing pleasure to read. When you are not enjoying it as much, you are like, oh my gosh, this is 800 plus pages. <laughs> Come on now. So yeah, um, that is basically what I have to say about Middlemarch. Uh, I really admire and respect this book. When I started it, I was I was sure it was going to be a five-star book. I was like, this is going to be such a dream to read 800 plus pages of this. But those orcs dragged it down. Um, but it only dragged it down one star, and I'm happy to rate it four stars. Oh, nice. Yeah. All right, great. Boop, boop, boop. Andrew, do you have any facts about Miss George Eliot? I do. As you all clearly know, George Eliot is a woman. Surprise. Surprise. Um, her name was Mary Ann Evans, and she was born on November 22nd, 1819 in Nuneaton, England. Her father was a manager on a large estate called Arbury Hall, and she grew up within the ground. So like one of those big estates in the countryside of England, her father helped manage it. Yeah, that's where that's where most of the story centers around is all those big estates. And there's actually a, a character who is a manager of estates. So that's interesting. Oh, could be based on her daddy. Um, according to Wikipedia, and I say that this is according to Wikipedia because I feel like it's overly mean, but um, <laughs> she wasn't considered beautiful enough to be expected to marry. Uh, so her dad decided to invest in her, edu- her education. The next sentence is that that she started school at age five, which means they decided a five-year-old what? was going to be too ugly to marry. <laughs> I'm going to chalk this up to just sort of how Wikipedia laid it out, but that could be the case. Uh, jokes on them because she did get married. Some would even say she got married twice. Um, she had more education than the typical woman of the time, uh, both in schools that she was sent to and uh, self-taught because she had access to the hall's large library. When she was 21, she moved away from her childhood home and to a place called Coventry. She was exposed to a lot of the radical thinkers of the day there and became a regular at a place called Rose Hill, um, which was the house of Charles and Kara Bray, where uh, many thinkers of the day exchanged ideas. She got to know a lot of people of the day, uh, developed left-leaning and sort of not, I wouldn't go so far as saying like anti religious because she wasn't like crusading against religion but she was sort of a religious at that time which was pretty unusual and she made friends with thinkers of the day like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Herbert Spencer and stuff like that eventually she moved to London planning on pursuing a career in writing where she stayed with John Chapman who was a friend from Rose Hill uh, who ran a periodical called the Westminster Review uh, which was a left-leaning journal of the time she became the assistant editor and then ended up sort of taking on the duties of the main editor um, which was actually very rare for a woman in those times uh, she contributed many essays and articles and gained her prominence through that, all of that before she published any uh, fiction. She met the philosopher George Lewes in 1851, and they decided to live together in 1854. There was a small issue in that Lewes was already married. Uh-oh. Oh. <laughs> His marriage was open, so he says. Um, uh, but it was still a really scandalous decision, especially because they like entirely declined to be discreet about it. They're just like, yeah, we're together. And everyone's like, but ain't you married? And George is like, nah. George is like, I gotta lose this first wife. Yeah. Actually, George isn't even like, nah. George is like, yeah, this is my friend, Mary Ann, who's later going to be called George. Um, going so far as uh, Elliot took uh, Lou's last name. So she was Marianne Luz for a while. This remained pretty controversial, uh, but eventually they were like slowly accepted, even uh, meeting with royalty and Queen Victoria was publicly a fan of Eliot's novels later. So, Ooh. you know, you have a little bit of controversy and then, you know, people get used to it. 
Eventually, her interest pivoted to fiction, and she published her first foray into that in 1857, which was a series of short stories, or sort of longer stories, uh, that was later collected into scenes from clerical life. Soon after, she published Adam Bede, which was her first novel. Both of those were very well received, and both were published under her pen name, George Eliot. She chose to publish under a male pseudonym because while there were female authors at the time, she didn't want to be associated with them. She actually didn't really like female authors. She actually wrote essays about this. Oh, no. She carved out an exception for Charlotte Bronte. She didn't specifically carve out an exception for, for Jane Austen, so I don't exactly know how she felt about her, but sometimes you can't see what influences you, mm-hmm. even if it's there. Mm-hmm. I feel like she would really dislike my review. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> um, the mystery of the pseudonym didn't actually last very long. She revealed herself after Adam Bede gained some prominence, uh, mostly because a dude was trying to take credit for having written the books. <laughs> so she was like, wait, hold up, dude. It's me. I would have done um, the same thing. like a dude. Yeah. She continued using it, but people knew it was who she was soon into her writing career. Uh, she chose George Eliot because of her husband's name, George, and because she liked the sound of the name Eliot, saying it was, quote, mouth-filling. <laughs> Those are both two bonkers reasons. I, I guess so. I mean, she's had to come up with something. Yeah. Um, she went on to publish seven novels in total, as well as poems and short fiction. Uh, Middle March was her penultimate novel, and it was her most acclaimed during her life. Just to wrap up her life here, George Luz died in 1878, and she spent the next two years editing his work He had, as he had yet to finish it. Uh, during that time, she met John Cross, a Scot, 20 years her junior, who she married in 1880. So she nice. snapped up a younger man. Ooh la la. During their honeymoon to Venice, John attempted suicide by jumping from their hotel balcony into the Grand Canal. What? <laughs> yep, just going <laughs> to brush past that. He did not die, but Elliot did shortly after they returned to London, still also in 1880, due to some controversial stance about stances about Christianity, as well as her long-term relationship with Luz. She was not buried in Westminster Cathedral, though it's evidence of how famous she was that she was even like expected to be buried there. Pretty mm. high, high mm-hmm. profile. Instead, as I've, I think I've mentioned before, she's buried in Highgate Cemetery, also in London, next to Luz and very close to Karl Marx and Herbert Spencer. Oh. Mm. Finally, taken from a mental floss list about facts on George Eliot, George Eliot invented the term pop to refer to popular culture, which is pretty funny when you think about who our next author is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the house she grew up in is now a steakhouse. <laughs> oh, no. Does it have a name that's like George Eliot's Steakhouse? No, it has like a very long name. It involves like Beef Eater mm. and some, some stuff. It's a, it's a, a steakhouse and hotel. Uh, moving quickly on. <laughs> Speaking of uh, pop culture, Bailey, did you read a, a book this last two weeks? I did read a book. I Ooh. read the book. Ooh. I read the book Evie Drake Starts Over by Linda Holmes. And I think the joke that you guys are making is Linda Holmes is one of the hosts of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. That's why you're talking about pop, right? I get it, right? Well, we have the inventor of the term pop here, as um... well as someone who's making her career hosting the Pop Culture Happy Hour. God. Do you not see the connection? No, I get it. I get it. Okay, okay, okay. Evie Drake Starts Over is a romance. It came out last year. It follows a woman named Evie Drake, whose husband has just passed away. And he's an emotionally abusive husband. And so she wants to sort of start over with her life. But she has never told her family and friends of how bad things were. She feels that she has to play this role of this widow when really she just feels sort of a sense of relief that he's gone. And she meets um, a baseball player named Dean, who is in town in her small town of Calcasset, Maine, based on the town of Rockland, Maine. Been there. Been there, exactly. 
But you have not you have not done that as in met an attractive baseball player. No, but I've been to the Lobster Festival. Yes, and they reference that in the book. So Dean comes to town because Evie's best friend Andy is friends with Dean. So he brings Dean in because Dean is suffering from the yips, which is I don't know if it's all sports use this, but I know they use it in baseball, maybe golf, where you just like suddenly can't play and you just mess up and you can't focus. Yeah, it's really common in in golf as yeah, a term. Same I've only ever heard it used in like golf. Baseball. Oh yeah, I've heard it in, in baseball. I think uh, the natural has references it a lot. Yes. Um, so he has the yips. He was a you know major league baseball pitcher for the Yankees, which is crazy. If you're from Maine and you're like he's a Yankee and he's coming to Maine, enemy territory. Ugh. So he moves into Evie's apartment that's attached to her house, and of course they fall in love. But they're both kind of broken people that help fix each other. What was Bailey? What was the name of your local team again? Where like someone ran past you and was like, "Oh, Clippers, Clippers suck." But my local baseball team, and Andrews too, is the Portland Sea Dogs. Whoa, what a great mascot. Yeah. It's great. They're a, they're a minor league team for the Red Sox. So that's the basic premise. Uh, things I loved about it, my elves. Of course, I'm a sucker for anything Maine. So I loved all the descriptions of the seafront. All of it just felt very familiar to me and I think would be very escapist to somebody that's interested in going to Maine that hasn't been to Maine. Or if they're locked in their apartment for the next few months. Yeah, exactly. As a romance, it does employ some, you know, romance cliches, such as the idea of insta-love, like falling in love at first sight. George Eliot would be so mad. No, (laughs) but it's well written. Um, Linda Holmes does a great job of making it feel a little more fresh, even though you you know what's going to happen from the beginning. So I'll just give you a sentence so you can get a sense of her writing style. This is the insta-love. This is the meet cue. This is page 33. Dean has just come and checked out the apartment, and then he's looking at Evie. The amount of time people who have just met are supposed to look directly at each other, particularly without talking, is a unit that's both very short and very precise. When you exceed it, you get suspicious, or you get threatened, or you get this flicker of accidental intimacy, like you've peeked at the person naked through a shower door. They both smiled, and it ended. Right, she said. So, I think you should take it. The apartment. You should take it. It keeps going from there. But you just get the sense where this is a familiar story, a familiar framework, but she adds some smart witticisms in there that just are typical Linda Holmes. Like, she's a smart lady. She fits him in. Mm -hmm. And she's quite funny as well. A big thing that I really liked about the book is that both of the romantic leads feel like adults. Like, sometimes in romantic comedies, they're just like bigger children. (laughs) No, that's totally apt. I was never thought about it. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're just... Yeah. (laughs) They can't get it together or they're just like, why are you acting like that? Why don't you just say what you mean, how you feel? So these are both people that mean really well. They have great intentions. They just have had hard lives or difficult, traumatic, recent experiences. And so they're processing it, processing those together. And so it's refreshing to see a romance between two people that like you actually like and are rooting for. So the only orcs I have are that this is this is a personal taste thing. This may be fine for Uh-oh. you. But for me, the book is dark at points. It does deal with like this emotionally abusive husband. You know, the yips, I don't really care about baseball, but the way he describes it is just devastating that he's just lost his whole career and his whole life. And it gets kind of sad. Um, And I think because of everything that's going on right now, I was in the mood for more of just candy, candy, happy romance. And it was a little too real for me. 
Um, And that combined with just really high expectations I had for the book, because a lot of people I know really, really loved it, just made it fall a little bit. You know, when you just think something is going to be so good, and then when it's just like fine instead of so good, it just feels like a little bit of a letdown. For sure. There's nothing particularly wrong with it. It's just not a five star for me. I would say it's between three and four stars. Thinking back to how I gave Anna Karenina four stars, I should probably give it three stars. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it's it's between three and four. I, I guess let's go with three. Come on, give it four. Okay. Be generous. Okay, I'll give it four. I'll give it four. Um, but I would say... Wow, that happened easily. <laughs> Come on, Bailey. Give it five. Give it five. <laughs> no, no, no. Give it seven. Get- <laughs> yeah. Seven stars. No. I- I'm going to... I'll go with four. I'll go with four stars. Um solid romance and i think it's it's her first novel so i'm excited to see what she has next and it would be a great movie i'm excited to see it developed that would be really cool so yeah evie drake starts over by linda holmes four stars nice it's the same amount of stars as anna karenina and middlemarch yeah. which is considered middlemarch which is considered one of the greatest works of the 1800s cool Aww. toby you encouraged her to go <laughs> <laughs> so i just want to say as we go into our facts about linda holmes We often say, this person's a newer author. They don't have a lot about them. Linda Holmes has the least about her biography that I have ever seen. No way. (laughs) About in in any author. I mean, she has a lot of content out there, but I couldn't like sift through like episodes of Pop Culture Happy Hour to to find these things out. To the point where I'm going to say Linda Holmes was born on November 14th, 1970. And I'm just going to trust that that's correct. I can only find one source for it. It makes sense from what other sources say when she graduated college, but I only I don't know for sure that that's actually her birthday. I heard it was November um, 15th. Oh, no. <laughs> and she grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, she attended Oberlin College in Ohio and went on to study law at Lewis and Clark Law School. She practiced law in Minnesota until 2007 before she made her pivot to being a uh, critic and podcaster and, you know, general artistic kind of person. Cool lady. So, so many, so many yeah, cool of these authors, so many authors are involved in the law or corporate finance first. It's crazy to me. Yeah, isn't that weird? There's weird. a lot of lawyers who um, go on to write romance. Uh, Stacey Abrams wrote some romance novels. She was also a lawyer. Um, and there are other examples, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> So taken, this is taken from her website because this is what I'm reduced to. I'm a podcast host, novelist, culture critic, radio maker, interviewer, Twitter liker, Twitter fearer, dog owner, former lawyer, one-time college acapella singer, occasional bread baker, photography dabbler, and very lucky weirdo. In case you guys picked up on dog owner. My dog's name is Brian. He was rescued in Spain where they have a surplus of speedy dogs like him. So he was brought to the United States where he had a better chance of being adopted. He was named Brian by the rescue, which seems to give all its dogs people names. And when I adopted him, it seemed like he'd had enough upheaval. So he kept his name. I take a lot of pictures of him. You can find them on Instagram at Primo Dog Content. I am glad that she explained that because Brian is a terrible name for a dog. I'm sorry. No shade. Yeah, no, it's not great. Continuing, I used to write about TV, much of it reality, at the wonderful and now retired site Television Without Pity. I've also written for MSNBC and Vulture and TV Guide. In a former life, I was an attorney, which is where I developed my great love of arguing. That's how I once successfully persuaded some very intelligent people to vote the Honeymoon in Metropolis episode of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, into their canon of great television episodes. So the rest of the facts I have about here are taken from an NPR interview after... Evie Drake was published, getting interviewed by her own publication. Pretty wild. 
<laughs> mm. um, the question here is, what's it like to be a pop culture critic putting yourself out there for criticism? Um, for those of you who don't know, just before I read her response, we've, we've mentioned it, but she's the host of the NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, which uh, runs down the pop culture of the day. It's like a lesser version of the two-read list. <laughs> <laughs> Linda Holmes says... It's not that I'm unaccustomed to being told that my work is bad, even for critics, that happens to you all the time. Happens all the time. But I do think that fiction, in particular, is a different kind of vulnerability that you're really saying to people, I made all this up, it did not really happen, please sit down and let me tell you the story which comes entirely out of my head. And that does make you feel very exposed in a different way, probably, than I'm going to talk about this movie, or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember like hearing that she had a book coming out and thinking that very same thing where I was like, oh, man, it, it must be so intense as a person who critically judges art on a day by day basis to put something of yourself out there. The yeah. last quote I will read to you is her response to a question about having fresh starts herself in life, uh, drawing on the themes of the novel. I always say I'm approximately on plan E for my life. <laughs> you know, I wanted when I was in college to be a music teacher and then I went to law school and then I came to NPR and then I was a writer and then I got into podcast and now I'm doing this. And there have been so many plans and I've been very lucky to be able to follow the path wherever it goes. And I think it made me very particularly sympathetic with people who have to try something completely new and find a different version of themselves. I think everybody has that moment where they think, what I thought my life was going to be is not quite what it's going to be. And those are both very difficult moments and moments that lead you to something that's more true. And that's what I found about Linda Holmes. You can check out her criticism on the Pop Culture Happy Hour and her website's pretty fun too. I recommend checking it out. All right. Uh, great facts, Andrew. Do you have a game for us? I do. I have a game for you. Yay! Hooray! The game this week is called Pop Goes the George Poem. <gasps> Inspired by George Eliot coining the term pop and Linda Holmes being on the Pop Culture Hoppy Hour, I decided to create a game that brings both of those things together in the shared love of something in popular culture. So what we have here is going back to our, our roots, two lists of separate things, and I'm going to have you guess which one is which. In one column, we have a poem written by George Eliot, and on the other, we have an entry on the first ever Billboard Hot 100 list on August 4th, 1958. Ooh. So, whoa, I hope that's far enough back that you're not necessarily going to recognize the names of the song. So it'll be a little challenging. That's my favorite decade of song making. Well, I'm a time traveler, so I'll do great. All right. So the way this game is going to work is you will buzz in by saying George, if you think you have the answer to prevent this new punk strategy that keeps happening where somebody just buzzes in before they have decided on an answer. Toby. Some would say it's a flaw in game design that was cleverly exploited. That's why I'm putting in this little wrinkle. If you buzz in on one question, the next question, you automatically go second. Ooh. So okay. you have to be pretty sure about your answer because you're going to seed right to answer first on the second one. All right. Okay. Is that clear? Yes. So to buzz in, say George. Got it. Right, let me hear your Georges like to make sure you've got it. George. Uh, Tommy. <laughs> Dang. That, that's... <laughs> You will be docked points for that. Uh -huh. I have 10 here and a tiebreaker if we end up tied. Um, obviously, you can't steal because it's a binary choice. So we're going to go to four. I'm hoping that you guys are going to get them correct. Okay. All right. Two lovers. George. Bailey. Song. That is incorrect. It is a poem by George Eliot. Oh, no. oh I would have guessed George Eliot. I yeah. should have buzzed. <laughs> well, you get to go first this time, Toby. So. But I won't know this one. 
The Spanish Gypsy. Okay, uh, George, I'm going to yes, say Toby. that's from the first Billboard list. That is incorrect. No, it is also I a poem you. by George Eliot. <laughs> <laughs> so then do we go anybody can buzz? Yeah, now anyone, anyone can okay. buzz. So you both have zero points. Congratulations. Yay. Thanks, George. Patricia. George. Toby. I'm going to say Billboard. That is correct. Ooh. It is. It debuted at number two on that chart and is by Perez Prado and his orchestra. Everyone knows that one. <laughs> yeah, it's a real banger. Patricia. Um, <laughs> See, Bailey and I sang the exact same notes and you can't prove us wrong. All right. Next one. Poor little fool. Uh, George. Bailey. Um, I think that's a song. I'm sorry. That is correct. Yay. It is the first ever number one song on the Billboard chart. It's by Ricky Nelson. Duh. Narrowly beat out Patricia. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Midnight. George. (laughs) Yes, Toby? Um, Midnight, is that correct? That's the whole title? Yes, Midnight. I'm going to say George Eliot. I'm sorry, that is incorrect. It debuted at number 76. Oh. Debuted at number 76 on the Hot 100. It's by Paul Anka. Duh. All right. Oh, okay. That's a name I know. Agatha. Um, George. Bailey? That one is George Eliot. That is correct, yes. Bailey. Oh, I thought you so, You have taken too. the lead. Uh. Is it two to one? It is two to one in Bailey's favor. The board is open, though, now. Is one of the songs on the top 100 taking the lead? <laughs> <laughs> that would be pretty cool. Brother and sister. George. Brother and sister, I'm going to say, is a George Eliot poem. That is correct. Oh, Congratulations. No. Well, Toby, you get to go first on this one. So let's see if you get it correctly. Fever. Fever. Okay. Mm. I mean, I know that there's a song called Fever. Is it from the 50s? I'll say yes. Billboard Top 100, please. That is correct, Toby. Bring yourself back into the game. It debuted at number 10, and it was by Peggy Lee. Fever. Getting songs right gives me fever. Fever. Boom, 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 boom. All right, we only have a few left here. So, uh, Bailey, you have a narrow lead. The board is open. All right, let's go. Endless sleep. Um, George. I'm yeah, George. Bailey. George Eliot. Incorrect. Ah. Ah. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Endless sleep was debuted at number seventeen by Jody Reynolds. Mm. Worried about Jody. Uh, so remind me. I'm sorry. Is it an open or or is it my shot? I am glad you asked, Toby, because you are guaranteed to go first on this. Also, if you get this correct, that means you have tied with Bailey and it goes to the tiebreaker. Fever. Okay, no pressure. Fever. Lot of pressure. Fever. All right. A college breakfast party. Okay. A weird title either way. Yeah. I feel like it's (laughs) hinting towards... Okay, I'm going to say song. All right. That is... Incorrect, Toby. It is a poem by George Eliot. Bailey takes the win three to two. The tiebreaker would have been Chantilly Lace. Do you know who wrote that? I know that song. (laughs) Oh, oh no. (laughs) My parents (laughs) sing that song all the time. That's why it was the tiebreaker, because I thought it would be something you might know more. So congratulations, Bailey. You've won. Pop goes the George song. Poem. We all love to eat pancakes and read our assignments. College breakfast party. That's the song. (laughs) Good game, Andrew. Yay, I win. That was a fun game, Andrew. I'm glad you liked it. All right. Well, um, so we already know my book for next week. You guys picked it. It's Redwall by Brian Jacks. But Dylan, now it's time for you to pick a book at random from Toby's shelf that he'll read next time. 
It is the choosing. The choosing. The choosing. Uh, Toby, you have number 16, Cat's Eye by Margaret Atwood. Oh, oh, nice. Bringing back the Atwood. This is great because um, I actually have this on my shelf and I can't go to the library to get it. So great. Perfect. Perfect. Fortuitous. It has like a like a really sci-fi looking cover. It's like this hooded cloaked figure with like a metallic orb hovering in front of it. Ooh. Yeah, it looks cool as heck. Nice. All right, great. Nice. So next week on the podcast, we have a mini-sode. Then in two weeks... I'm reading Red Wall by Brian Jacks. I hope you are too. Send us all your thoughts about that book and we'll share them. And Andrew's reading Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. The classic combination. <laughs> <laughs> if I can jump in real quick, uh, obviously people know I'm a fan of Red Wall. I will make one more advocacy for it. It's so much fun. It is a book for children, uh, but if you enjoy stuff like that, it's well-written, very enjoyable, and you will blast through it. It's a very quick read. Awesome. And it is available on Kindle, on audiobook, if your local library is closed or if your bookstore, you can't order it. Thanks for listening to The To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com and also send us your reviews there. Follow us on Goodreads <laughs> at goodreads.com slash the to read list podcast. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the to read list podcast and on Twitter at to read list pod. If you enjoyed this podcast, uh, please go on your podcast app, Raider of Choice, and rate us five stars. You literally don't have anything else to do now. Uh, you have no excuse. You're not going to go swimming at the public pool. Um, that's really all anybody does any, every day anyway. So yeah. um, you have no excuse. Five stars, please. Uh, also, if you enjoyed the podcast, please think of a friend that you want to FaceTime or, or send a quick text to to check in with and also recommend our podcast. <laughs> We're going to have some scary indoor months for a while. So might as well use this time to uh, bone up on some some new favorite podcasts. And we think we can be one. The only one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you next week. Stay safe and happy reading. Books, books, books. books, books. books. books.